Welcome back to Don't Waste Our Future, a series of interviews about the past, present and future of waste in Ireland. In the last episode, I spoke with Linda Fitzpatrick, the spokesperson for the Cork Harbour Alliance for a Safer Environment, or CHASE as they are better known. We spoke about the group's establishment almost 20 years ago, soon after Indiver, a privately owned Belgian company, first proposed the construction of an incinerator in Cork Harbour. In that podcast, Linda addressed some of the significant moments between then and now, especially the considerable input from the community in terms of time, energy and cost. We also spoke about the judicial review that will be taking place in a few weeks and how this could determine whether or not the incinerator goes ahead. While I'm hoping to interview more people who are closely involved with the review, in this episode we'll be looking at waste from a different perspective, that being artificial intelligence. I wanted to know if AI and big data could hold some solutions for reducing waste, but also if AI could help lead to a more sustainable future. I got in touch with Professor Barry O'Sullivan, who is an award-winning academic working in AI and data analytics. Barry's credentials are insane. His current titles include Chair, Founding Director, Principal Investigator and Adjunct Professor. And in June 2018, he received what looks to me like the most impressive title when he was appointed Vice Chair to the European Commission High Level Expert Group on Artificial Intelligence. I can't even imagine what they speak about in those meetings. But what is most interesting to this topic is that he's also an advisor to the Computational Sustainability Network. This is a network of 13 universities cities in the US who try to discover computing methods that can be applied to sustainability challenges. So, for example, conservation, poverty mitigation and renewable energy. Furthermore, Barry is a Caragtool man and with the Indifer site not far from his home, I wanted to hear his opinions. And so in this episode, I chat with Barry about population growth, why I'm wrong about my perception of the world, gamification, the sustainability goals, self-driving cars and retrospective negligence. Hopefully it will all make sense in the end. I suppose that what concerns me is, is the growth in the population. Like, we're expected to have 9.6 billion people by 2050. And then I read on the UN website that it would take three planets to provide the natural resources to sustain our current lifestyle. In a broad sense, how could big data reduce our reliance on natural resources, or could it? Mm. Well, I think it can. Um, I, I suppose the... There's a field called computational sustainability, which is all about how you use sort of mathematics and computer science to study sustainability problems. And people have been looking at, well, to what extent you can use data and AI and computer science and mathematics to do things like uh, look at environmental sustainability, so um, everything from how to manage crops, how to manage uh, forestry, how to ensure that uh, you know we're adopting sustainable fishery policies, all these sorts of things. So I think it can certainly manage stuff like that. Um, and also, I suppose the key thing is dealing with waste because, you know, we, we over-purchase, we buy far too many things, things we don't need. Um, we usually buy too much of them. And of course, there are people who are in need of those things. And so... Um, this is where this whole sharing economy has come up, you know. Um, so there's, there's huge opportunities for using computing and IT and mathematics and science for dealing with many of these sorts of problems. Um, it's not going to solve the the population problem. That's a that's a separate issue entirely, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But um, um, in terms of how to do sustainable policy development and so on, I think it's interesting. There's a very there's an excellent organisation called the UN Global Pulse at the which is in the 
Office of the Secretary General of the United Nations, and they look at identifying um, ways in which technology and big data can be used for achieving the Sustainable Development Goals. And so it's well worth having a look at that website, and you'll see all these projects, and you'll see examples of how data and technology can be used you know, f- for the sustainability agenda, and many of the things that are related to this are there. And, and you spoke at a UN event about how AI could affect those Yeah, we, we ran a, an event a few years ago at the General Assembly um, on AI and sustainability. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge agenda, obviously. So, um, and uh, one that, you know, we, we do need to take seriously. You know, there's a, there's a very well-known, well, now late professor, Hans Rosling, who wrote this fantastic book, Factfulness. I'm not sure if you've ever read that. Um so, you know, the whole world is into mindfulness, you know, sort of how, thinking back and, uh, you know, sort of reflecting on what you're doing. So fact, Rosling's factfulness theory is all about how you, um, how you sort of focus on the facts and the truth and what the world is really like. And what's nice about the book is that it's, um, he shows that people's belief of the world is much more negative than the world actually is. You know, so people think that things are worse than they are and that, you know, the world is worse now than it used to be. And, of course, it isn't true. Um but he points to this idea that there is no longer this concept of a developing and a developed world, that there's no us and them. But um, he talks about how the how the pop- how population growth and how that's going to impact on all sorts of issues. Uh, so well, well worth having a look at that sometime. And I suppose like a lot of people come out and say, like Mary Robinson and the big people talking about climate justice and things, that we're the people kind of causing the biggest detriments to other people oh, yeah. who aren't affecting it. But is, is it difficult to gather data from countries that don't like use technology the same oh, way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the, 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 everybody thinks that the world is flooded in data, which isn't true. <laughs> you know, it's true. To, it's true in in parts of the world where there is lots of technology, right, and lots of very good records. So you know, I suppose we would have historically called that the developed world, you know. Um, but you know, there's no distinction anymore. But the but there are certainly countries where even births and deaths are not recorded, you know. So you know, never mind where people are, um, you know, what what is the population is difficult to ascertain. So um, there's certainly that challenge. But I think we, we shouldn't let that get in the way because we can, you know, in those situations we can design technologies that. Um, that can help us uh, understand what's going on about the world. And the, the technology that's, ubiqui- that's becoming as ubiquitous as technology can get, of course, is the mobile phone. Um, and so in places where often there isn't internet necessarily, um, people will have a mobile phone, you know, because it's how they communicate with each other. It's maybe how they, um, how they uh, exchange money. It is their, you know, their balance of their call credit is their bank account, you know, so there's lots of technology that's becoming much more ubiquitous. But it is true that not everywhere has the same richness of data that other places have. I love the way that data can help government policy, but is that where it ends? Can it help with other... Absolutely. Like uh, one of the big... A few years ago, people talked about gamification, this idea that you could um, alter people's behaviour by creating what are called serious games. So an example of a serious game is if you have a smart thermostat in your home and I've got a smart thermostat in my home um, and it sort of, you know, we share with each other our energy usage, we might try to sort of, you know, compete with each other to figure out, well, how can I use the least amount of energy to make my home comfortable? Um, and so, you know, if I'm doing well, then you're sort of saying, well, I should be a bit more energy efficient and all that sort of stuff. And so this whole gamification thing is something that data can do. So when it comes to water... Um, 
if we all could see how much water everybody else was using and how much we were using, then it might alter how, you know, if we discovered that we're using five times more water than the next door neighbour, we must all say, well, what's going on there? Um, so, you know, there's things like, you know, gamification, serious games, all that behaviour change that data can use, that can data can help with, which um, is not, you know, it's just sharing what you already have, you know, it's not creating any new data. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating for water meters or anything. But that's what I was going to say. But, you know, the, um, I'm not advocating for water meters or whatever. But the interesting thing about it is that it also shows, what well, this whole field... Um, could give sort of support to the idea that you don't need to penal, you don't need to charge people necessarily uh, to use less water. You can just incentivize them to use less water by sort of putting a mirror up to themselves and sort of saying, "Well, your behaviour is consuming, you know, this amount of water." You know, you know if you've got a group of friends and you're using more water than the sum total of them, you know, does a little bit of peer pressure there too, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so data doesn't have to. So that's just a water example, but there are many, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if you record things, if you're sharing with your friends, for example, you know, the, your carbon footprint, and so, you know, that can be interesting. Um, but of course, we're, fu- we're full of um, uh, sort of hypocrisy, you know, like we'll, we'll spend, you know, we'll try to be, uh, we'll recycle and we'll behave in this way and that way. But then, you know, we all, many of us want to take that nice fancy holiday or, you know, um, you know, we don't want to take the boat. We'll actually we'll fly to London. You know, um, the one that sort of made me laugh altogether was the um, was the climate change conference in Paris. Everybody flew in for that. You know, <laughs> so like, you know, why didn't they just stay at home and just Skype? <laughs> you know, now of course the reason for that is that they don't want to sit around the table and talk to each other. Um, last week I was we had this uh, kickoff meeting for a project last week, and I was talking to a colleague of mine in Barcelona. So Barcelona don't like their tourists, obviously. So they think that tourists have taken over Barcelona. And um, we were just chatting about this, and he was um, he was getting very sort of uh, he was getting very um, annoyed at this whole situation. And he was able to rattle off the amount of water consumed by tourists versus people who live at home. Um, and when you think about it, it kind of makes sense, you know. I suppose there's, there's this whole idea of you know how do you use the resources that you have to achieve your objectives without without sort of compromising on what you want to achieve. So you know, enjoying your Whatever, whatever it is you enjoy to do, but in a way that sort of maximizes the, the bang you get for your buck, so to speak. Responsible consumption comes down to, well, c- consuming what you need, but also consuming things that have been created ethically and um, have been sourced ethically and maybe transporta- transported ethically. Um, and so um, people often don't sort of think about where, where the objects that they, that, that they consume come from, you know, and just, uh, and, you know, luxury items are, are not necessarily... Uh, more sustainable um, or more green. So this is something that really has to be taken into consideration. I think what the, the the big problem really is the fact that the population is growing, but also the plastic, um, like the mass producing, production of plastic has been like accelerating over the past 50 years. And, and it's like plastic doesn't decompose. All the plastic that we've created is still on the planet. And then what I read actually was that 10% of plastic bottles are oil. So then that conjured in my mind us kind of like sticking a big like syringe into the earth, sucking up all the oil, making it into this hard deposit and then lining the earth with this kind of plastic rim. But as a professor of computer science, like computer science probably wouldn't be where it is today without plastic kind of stuff like that. Would it be like, do you you think it was a good thing? Well, I suppose computer, so computer science, like, well, different computer scientists will think of it differently. Like, I suppose I look at computer science as a, as a 
as a form of mathematics rather than as a like I don't like computers <laughs> I don't like using computers typically um, so there's nothing I hate more on a weekend than touching a computer um, so despite the fact I'm a computer science professor um, I suppose computer science is all about how you solve problems so how you um, so identify a problem write the problem down figure out a way of solving it um, I say that computer, sci that computer science is all about eliminating frictions so how do you how do you build technologies or how can you characterize technologies that eliminate some um, some problem that people might have so for example you know social networks not our not not the highest um, not one of our best moments in in computing but um, what they do of course is they break down the friction associated with keeping in contact with people um, electronic payments you know um, electronic banking how you eliminate uh, the friction of getting access to um, to money and so on. Um, online dating, you know, breaking under friction of, you know, so screaming at somebody in a nightclub or something, you know. And now some of these, like some of these frictions are good to get rid of, but some of these frictions are not, you know. So, um, like people talk about technology addiction and social networking addiction, you know, it's, maybe it's a real thing, maybe it's not. Um, obviously people use this stuff a lot. Um, so, so, you know, the question is whether some, whether some of these things are sustainable in the sense of, um, in the long run, whether they're you know, to the benefit of people or not. And, uh, you know, we need lots of other experienced people like lawyers and psychologists and sociologists and uh, ethicists to tell us about that sort of stuff. But, you know, um, there we are. But computer science is not uh, necessarily just about the computer itself. Yeah. So, um, and in fact, lots of computing devices over time have been, um, don't necessarily have to be in plastic. Unfortunately, as we touch these things in everyday life, as we experience them, they are electronic devices. There's glass and plastic and everything else in them, um, which is, uh, you know, that's just how it is. Same with the automotive industry, I suppose. I know. Now, to bring it in more local, yeah. um, I, I didn't realise that you were a cartoon man until um, just when I was listening to a different podcast. Somebody has to be. <laughs> Somebody has to be. <laughs> the only one. And, uh, so you are actually quite close to the incinerator, like where, the, the, where it's yeah. proposing to be built. Um, now, I, 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 don't, I don't know if AI has, like, I suppose there's so much technology in incineration and I suppose they do collect data about what's being wasted. But first off, yeah. what's your initial, what, what do you feel about an incinerator being built in your backyard? Well, I don't like it, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but of course, you know, nobody does. And um, I suppose if, if incinerators have to be built, and I suppose um, I'm not expert enough to know whether we do need these things. I presume we don't need them, but if, let's assume for a second that we do. Uh, they have to be built somewhere, so um, they have to be built in somebody's back garden. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, I suppose putting, putting them alongside a big harbour is not, is not a great place to put these things, but um, um, I'm not an expert in any way of waste disposal. I suppose you know, I tried not to have... Despite how my office looks, I try not to um, not to have too much waste. Although my office does look like a does look like a, a waste paper bin. Um, the I suppose AI can help to some extent, but I suppose um, when it comes to things like this, I suppose the biggest fear is not is not AI. It, I suppose the most interesting thing is not um, is probably not AI, artificial intelligence. It's more real stupidity, you know. So how do you avoid people making stupid decisions? Um, there is an extraordinary market around um, waste it seems that uh, that these that incinerators are commercial enterprises and they have to 
be fed with waste and so waste has to, has to come from somewhere and so if we're not generating enough of it locally it has to well it has to be brought in from abroad which is extraordinary you know so like there is um, there's a world market uh, in waste where um, and there are supply chains there are huge tankers that move waste from one country to another so that it just it can feed these incinerators China's a big consumer of international waste um, and in fact I think I read recently that uh, that one of the great services that China provides to the United States is that it is that it burns much of the United States, much of the waste that comes to the United States, which is extraordinary when you think about it. You know, um, that you buy an artifact from China, for example, it gets mailed over to the US. You use it, you unpackage it, and then you put the package in the bin and send it back to China again so that wow. they can burn it. You know, like it's kind of mad when you think about it. Um, so, like I suppose the. Um, like t- technology isn't a solution to most of these problems, you know. Um, like there are certainly technology certainly has a role, and AI has a role to some extent. But we need people just to think differently about how they consume, you know. Um, like uh, we don't. Ha- I'm not aware that we have a, any stores in Cork, for example, where you bring your own jars to buy food products, you know. And these, like in all the places I've been to recently. There are supermarkets, basically, where you bring your own packaging. You know, you bring your own, you know, plastic tubs and you bring your own um, uh, glass jars. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a plastic tub, you know. Just use it many, many times. Just get the benefit of it, you know. Um, and this isn't an AI or technology solution. This is just behavior change. Um, so I think we have to, um, I think we have to deal with that. There are certainly things that AI can do in the broader sense of waste management. So technology to help people sort of match around uh, waste, I, so, I suppose, understand, share rather than buy. So, you know, when we use Uber and My Taxi and all these sorts of things, we are sharing a resource that we just don't want to buy ourselves and which it would be inefficient to buy. And with self-driving cars, can you see that? Well, I'm not so, so self-driving cars are going to be interesting because um, they will create their own environmental problems. So I think as a cons- as a technological challenge, I think they're interesting. You know, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's uh, kind of interesting to see it's kind of an interesting challenge technically to see uh, self-driving cars on the road. I think we can, there are certainly parts of the world where self-driving cars could be part of everyday life. I don't think that's true in Ireland, you know. <laughs> um, I'm a fan of self-driving cars, but I think it's um, of, of them from a technical point of view. Um, the curious thing about Ireland is that we still haven't sort of adopted, you know, the automatic transmission hasn't even, ad- hasn't even taken up uh, widespread use, never mind the self-driving car. So, um, you know, we won't even let the car decide what fucking gear we should be in. <laughs> you know, so, so, the, uh, so we have to figure that out. But the other thing is, um, when you think about environmentally and from a waste point of view, self-driving cars are, might not actually be a good idea. Because if you have to get from your house to work and somebody else has to get from their house to work, then that car has to not only drive you to your place of work, but then it has to drive to that other person's place of work Whereas if you're driving yourself, you'd, that, that journey wouldn't be made. You know, that the journey from your place of work to pick up the other person wouldn't be made. I never thought of it that way, wow. So, like, there's, um, so the question is whether there's going to be a lot more, depending on how these sorts of things work, you can imagine that there'll be lots more unnecessary journeys. And so environmentally, it's a negative thing. From a traffic point of view, it might be a negative thing. Um, so despite the fact we're not driving these cars anymore, um, doesn't mean there's going to be fewer of them. Um, of course, what we need is some is some sort of uh, system where we share uh, transportation. But that's called public transport, yeah. <laughs> you know. So um, 
So, you know, given a choice between um, between a good bus and rail network versus self-driving cars, I think I'd be, I think I'd much prefer the bus and train, you know. Um, like, self-driving cars are interesting, te- they're technically interesting, and certainly in the United States there are places where it's just infeasible to imagine a public transport system. Um, but um, that's not the norm, you know. Um, so we should, like, I suppose this is where the economists come come into into the equation. You know, as a technologist, I can look at the problem of well, how you build a self driving car, and how you um, how you build the AI system around it, how you would deal with the you know how you avoid collisions, and also ask questions like, well, who's liable for these things when they go wrong? So if you get you know if your Aunt Aggie is knocked down by a self driving car, then you know who do you sue? You know, so th- th- there's those issues. But the sort of the, the societal impact environmentally is something that you know obviously environmental scientists but also economists look, can look at, and some material I've read from from the uh, from economists suggests that self-driving cars will actually be a net negative environmentally, which is interesting. People don't tend to think about that at all. Do you know with the incinerator, one of the things is that uh, one of the kind of arguments that uh, Chase has is that the when when you're burning something and there's stuff coming out of the chimney and there's filters put on the chimney but because there's such tiny particles in there they can't even measure what's going out so we don't really know what's going out into the air if in 10 years time they find something that can measure those articles or those particles like is 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 there a retrospective right then for the like community to kind of sue the company well, I, well, I don't know because uh, I'm not a I'm not an expert in law, but I suppose um, you know the question. I, I imagine the question would be, well, who has someone been negligent? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I suppose the thing that springs to my mind now is that you know twenty years ago, like we thought that you know cows were cute and um, you know tasty. Uh, um, for those of us who eat meat, um, obviously they produce uh, a bit of a mess on the ground, but we never expected them to be quite as devastating to the environment in terms of methane, right? So, um, and statistically now we know that uh, we should have there should be a much smaller population of cows in the world than there, than there is. But whose fault is that? You know, like I don't, I, I can't imagine that uh, governments and public bodies are going to be uh, suing the farming community because they have too many cows because they should have known that. Um, that uh, cow burps are de- detrimental to the, to the climate, you know. So um, uh, I think the same is true of these um, of these incinerators. You know, if if we learn something that we didn't know in the future, then you know we know it then. But it's not that there was negligence um, necessarily on the on the incinerator at this moment in time, you know. But I suppose look the way I look at it is that. Um, you know, it's highly unlikely that uh, incineration is good for the environment because if it was, then I think incineration wouldn't have been something that we just copped onto in the last two hundred years. You know, so um, you know, the, I think the world would have figured out. Well, hey, you know, um, actually burning stuff is a good idea. Um, but we were always kind of burning out the back, weren't we? I remember like driving through Cork and people would be in their back gardens burning things. Yeah, but we, yeah, but we we, we weren't. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, people people had their little fire in the in the in the yard just to burn the cups and bits and bits and pieces. But they were they weren't um, importing waste by the uh, by the truckload and by the by the shipload either from countries who should have known better. Um, the um, 
so there just simply is a lot more waste now than there used to be you know I can remember I can remember a time when when you bought potatoes you bought them individually you know you could put them into a bag and the same with eggs you could you bought you didn't buy them all in boxes and packages and you you go to a supermarket now you'll find individual fruit for God's sake wrapped up in uh, in packaging and it's about the se- it's about the shelf life of things oh I know and you know what really gets me those baby <laughs> bell cheeses right oh, yeah, so yeah. so they're wrapped in that lovely wax and you can actually make that into candles I've put loads of them together now and I've, I've almost got a candle yeah. but then there's a separate plastic wrapper around the wax and I'm like well, and I think it's just a branding thing just to get yeah, their well, names it is and like uh, you know I suppose people there's also just a visual thing that people like to um, we do like to shop we like to go into shops you know, like if you go into shops like Brown Thomas, you'll see all the beautiful cosmetics and they're all beautifully packaged. You know, I think it's they're little works of art in their own right. You know, you can imagine that if um, if Brown Thomas was selling even the finest perfume in small little buckets, people wouldn't be so excited about it anymore, you know. So we tend to buy with our eyes as well. So I think the fact that our Cocoa Pops are uh, in a nice cute box is part of the buying experience, you know. Um, and um, But it's, you know, we, we need to get beyond that you know but how do we then right so then that's all putting the responsibility on the individual when the waste or the producers of most of the waste are big companies like how do we use data to get them to reduce the amount of waste that they create well like obviously you know the sustainable development goals one of the big role so um jacob lou who was uh the, the treasury secretary in the u.s said in uh at an event in addis ababa years ago that um one of the that data has a very central role in sustainability because, for no other reason, it, for no other for no other purpose, it allows us to measure our performance against the sustainable development goals. So it's just a way of verifying and observing how well we do. Um, and I suppose also it's a way of ensuring that our policies make sense. What, what gets me about the Indiver proposal, the incinerator, is that it's a Belgian company coming to Cork and deciding that Cork's future like, is now going to burn their waste. I feel like it's such a public decision. I feel like it should just be the government deciding. But then is that centralising decisions? Like, How do you feel about waste being decided by private companies? Well, I don't like it very much, but equally, I don't like uh, um, like a, I don't like the fact that uh, there are companies who can make drugs for fractions of pennies, but sell them for thousands of euros. Either you know, um, so but this comes down to our value systems, our societally. You know, what do we really want from society? Um, and there are a lot of people, and there you know, th- there is the sense that you know, um, sort of as I say, social democracy. You know. Um, more sort of social policy is a is a bad thing. I personally think it's it's the way forward. Um, like for example, I'm a very strong supporter of the thing called the universal basic income. Yeah, um, I love that idea. Yeah, so uh, explain what that is for uh, anyone. I will. I will. Yeah. But in fact, I've been I've given talks on the universal basic income in the US only to be uh, thrown out of the venue. Um, I've actually been thrown out the back of a taxi cab in the US for talking about the universal basic income on the basis that we don't want any communists here, <laughs> you know, um, to which um, I can remember once talking about uh, sort of free pub- the, the public health service in, the, in Ireland. In fact, it was free. Now, we, we might we might uh, argue that some aspects of it aren't as good as they should be, but um, um, the parts that need to be pretty much work, you know, so our maternity care is pretty good, you know, um, uh, there's no no well I suppose children can't be un, can't be, r- remain unborn for years of course but um, the um, uh, 
But the universal basic income is the idea that uh, that everybody should get the same basic income from the state. Um, there is no social welfare. There is no additional social payments. There is one single payment made to every man, woman and child. And that, that payment is sufficient to maintain a good standard of living. And uh, people are free to work in addition on top of that, um, for which they earn additional salary. But... Um, now, it sounds, to some people it might, sound, it might seem uh, um, sort of a new age and hippie, but uh, the, the arguments in favour of it are that it leads to more inclusive, caring and creative societies. So people who are, so artists can just focus on their art. Um, writers can focus on their on writing. People who want to make a fortune and become wealthy can focus on becoming a fortune and being wealthy. Um now people say, well, it's impractical. You know, you can't run such a thing. Who's going to pay for that? Um, but there are actually there have been many experiments on universal universal basic incomes run around the world that have been quite successful, um, and uh, some cities are running them around the world, and you know it works. You know, and hasn't and, a country adopted it? Some Scandinavian country. Well, there are certainly experiments in uh, you know the, the usual places, Sweden, Finland, um, which work reasonably well. There's, there's actually a social dividend paid to to the population of Alaska. So, um, so I can, that was my. Uh, I can remember once having a um, having a, an Alaskan Republican shouting at me about the, the uh, universal basic income. Um, calling me a communist and I, I can remember pointing out to him that well his own state paid the universal basic income except it was just called a social dividend yeah. um, and he didn't like that very much um, but um, at least there's a there's a you know it's a certainly an idea an idea and in the context of AI it's often raised in the context of AI because um, you know there are people who believe that AI is going to replace jobs I don't believe that's true I think uh, AI is probably is more likely to create more jobs than it is to remove them but if you accept the argument it's going to replace jobs, then the question is, well, what do you do? So doesn't that create a society where, you know, there are fewer workers and there are more employers, you know, in a sense? Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a greater divide between those who were employers and those who used to work. And um, the sort of counter-argument to that is this idea of a universal basic income, which I think is worth, it's certainly worth thinking about. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, like in Ithaca, Nupsia, New York, where Cornell is, um, in fact, I'm, I'm an advisor to the Computational Sustainability Institute there. Um, uh, there's a currency called the Ithaca dollar, um, and I've actually started working. Uh, I, I use this concept a little bit with some colleagues um, uh, outside the university. So the idea is that uh, an Ithaca, so 10 Ithaca dollars buy you one hour of work. And so regardless of... Um, who you are or what you do if whatever service you provide you do an hour of it it's 10 Ithaca dollars and uh, these are printed but they're not there's no association between them and uh, the US dollar so it's a it's a completely separate economy from the US economy um, and it's not illegal um, because it's essentially bartering uh, but there are farmers who will provide food uh, in return for Ithaca dollars so you know you can spend your 10 Ithaca dollars on a one hour's worth of Ithaca dollars on, you know, meat and vegetables, or you can work for an hour for your meat and vegetables. Um, but what's important in certainly in the US is that there is there, there cannot be an exchange rate between between that currency and the official currency. So, for example, you can't walk into a shop and see that uh, ten carrots is a dollar and ten carrots is 
a NISCA dollar because yeah. then there's a one-to-one -one correspondence yeah. between them, you see. So then you've valued them. But uh, I think it's a, kind of, it's a kind of a cute thing because, like in Ireland, we had this idea of, of, uh, of metal, you know, that people would come together and do work together and they would, you know, share each other's work and I would help you and then you'd come back and you'd help me. Um, so it's that kind of idea. Um, and uh, I think it'd be kind of fun to, to do that. So it'd be if, uh, if anybody listening to your podcast would like to establish a, a, cork, a cork pound or something or a... Or a Cork, whatever you want, then uh, let's establish uh, it right now. We could, we could, I think it'll be, it'll be fun, you know. Let's get the printer going. <laughs> let's get the printer going. Yeah. Do you think that we're on the right track? Like, I feel like we're we're almost at a tipping point in terms oh, think, of our. No, I think people are very aware of this. I think, uh, I think most people, uh, many people, well, many people are aware as they can be. Um, so people are aware of the environment. They are aware of climate change. You know, like my son, who's nine. Uh, he's terrified by climate change. He just thinks it's absolutely terrifying, and um, you know he's he's probably right. You know you don't, you don't want children to be afraid of these things, and that's not we've never set out to make him afraid of it. But he, he, just from him exp experiencing conversations about it in the world, he's sort of it's something that sort of frightens him, which which is which is a pity. Um, but people are aware of these things, but people need to need to react you know like the irony of how we do things needs to sort of dawn on us like taking taking the climate change conference people fly to the climate change conference you know um now of course there is no alternative <laughs> you know there was a, there was a i read a i read a story recently about this woman who was living this uh, very um this lifestyle where she wasn't generating lots of waste in her own personal life and um you know, she was sort of, she was, it was a bit extreme, you know, she was learning, she was living sort of off-grid and all this sort of stuff and, you know, um, basically there were no modern conveniences in her life, so very, very extreme. Um, but her best friend from uh, from childhood was getting married, but unfortunately in Australia and she was living in the UK. And so she was faced with this, this uh, quandary as to, well, she, you know, she was asked to be the bridesmaid at the wedding, so she wanted to participate. So how did she get there? And so the most environmentally friendly route that she could find that was sort of consistent with her principles um, was basically traveling, you know, sharing, you know, going along with transportation that was already going in that direction. So, you know, um, hitching rides on ships and, uh, you know, um, on trains and so on. And uh, I think it took her like four weeks to get from the UK to, to Darwin or something, wherever this thing was. Um, and she flew back. And then she went to the wedding. <laughs> right. and, then, and then she, no, she didn't fly back. She, she, <laughs> she just again. did it in reverse, basically. Wow. And uh, I think it took her six weeks or something. So she spent basically three months doing this. And um, so uh, some environmental policy experts sort of did an analysis of, of her journey. And uh, this sort of this twelve this twelve week this three month uh, um, uh, adventure of hers had a carbon footprint that was like maybe one third of what it would have been had she flown, you know, and uh, like uh, and also I suppose that trip had sort of undone, you know, her her sort of carbon uh, you know her lifestyle savings in terms of environmentalism. For you know, even more than she'd be living the lifestyle, <laughs> you know. So the so these things are very very hard. You know, I felt very sorry for this woman, but uh, now we're starting to understand what the what the what the impacts are, uh, and people talk about it all the time, and I think people are um, taking that on board. You know, and I think people are trying to be more sustainable. You know, like the government did try to introduce water charges, didn't work out. So whether one is for or against it, you know, there are things that are going on like that. Um, 
companies are, uh, you know, you, people are being very careful about, um, you know, you look around and see how coffee drinkers and tea drinkers are carrying around their keep cup. their keep cups yeah. and all the rest of it. And, you know, that that's, you know, these are small things, but um, but they're positive moves and people are aware of it. So I think, um, no, it's not, it's not as if we're, you know, running over the cliff and don't realise we're doing it. I think um, I, I think people are aware of these sorts of things. And I think uh, with initiatives like the Sustainable Development Goals and the focus on that, I think um, I wouldn't give up hope yet. Climate change is a big problem. And like if, if um, you know, the, the climate experts are telling us that... Uh, that this is a very serious problem that's going to, in the next fifteen years, be um, be non be unreversible. Um, you know, we should take heed of these people, um, and not because science is infallible, but you know, it's the best thing we have, <laughs> right? Um, uh, like, you know, praying to it, you know, for what it's worth, isn't going to quite cut it, um, and uh, you know, simply hoping for the best isn't going to work either. So. Um, you know, it's the best thing we have, and we should heed it and uh, and modify our behaviours accordingly. But of course, you know, the big polluters are you know the the wealthiest con- the wealthiest countries. It's not the like sure there's you know you can travel to parts of the world that are very poor, and it looks you know people are you know things are bad and things are uh, you know not clean and things are there's lots of waste, but it's it pales into insignificance in comparison to what we waste you know in. Uh, in the wealthier countries, so until we get our, so we need to get our house in order, you know. Um, but I think, look, we we start off talking about AI, and I think there's a like if you look at the AI community, I suppose there is a a large number of people in the AI community who are seriously concerned with these issues, um, and uh, and making some great inroads as well, you know. So we've no idea how technology is going to be impact on people, um, but it's going to be interesting to see how it does, and. Um, I think kids now understand the world in a way that we just simply don't. Um, like, I don't understand Snapchat as a concept. I don't understand it. Um, one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons is a is a sketch of a of a man on a on a on a bed in a A and E. His head's exploded, and the caption and there's two doctors with him, and it's uh, the caption is an, a case of another forty year old trying to understand Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the um, uh, so they see the world totally differently. Um, they interact with each other totally differently. How they what they think is acceptable and not acceptable is totally different, um, and that's great. <laughs> right. Um, so the world is going to be totally different, um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what it is. I suppose one of the one of the nice things about being a university professor is that you kind of never grow up, because I'm still like I teach first year uh, computer scientists. I've taught first year computer scientists since I pretty much started. So my class has never aged. Um, uh, they've changed in all sorts of ways. They've fundamentally changed, um, but they've they've not gotten any older. Um, and it's interesting to sort of you know be around people like that and just see how how they've changed. And it's uh, you know you do feel like the, the painting in Dorian Gray, but the um, it's it's interesting. And you know we've a lot to be optimistic about. After chatting with Barry, I downloaded Factfulness, the book that he suggested, and I did the questionnaire. It asks 13 questions with multiple choice answers. So, for example, question two asks, where does the majority of the world population live? A, low income countries, B, middle income countries or C, high income countries? The answer is B, middle income countries, but I assumed it was low income. 
Question three states, in the last 20 years, the proportion of world population living in extreme poverty has A, almost doubled, B, remained more or less the same, or C, almost halved. I thought I'd go conservative on this one and choose B, remain more or less the same, but the answer is almost halved. The proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty has almost halved. That's excellent. In the end, I got three out of 13 right, so Hans Rosling, the author, would have put me in the same category as chimpanzees in terms of my ability to understand the order of the world right now. Rosling asks us how we can make any assumptions and decisions, for example, where to travel on holidays or which countries we should be marketing to or investing in if we don't even know the basics of how the world is currently organised. So what I took from this interview was that I'm far too negative about the current state of the world and you can even tell from Barry's outlook that he's far less worried than I am and so I found that comforting. Professor Barry O'Sullivan will be doing a TEDx presentation on March 16th, 2019 in University College Cork. The theme is Prisms of Possibility and he'll be joined by speakers including mental health campaigner Adam Finn and doctor and repeal the eighth activist Mary Favier. The event is currently sold out. However, I believe there is a waiting list for tickets and hopefully videos of the talk will be made available after the event. Three days after that, on March 19th, is scheduled to be the first day of the High Court Judicial Review, whereby Chase will challenge Board Planola's planning permission for an incinerator at Ringeskiddy. So the future of the incinerator plans in Cork Harbour could be determined within a few weeks of March 19th. Now, when I first wanted to make this podcast, I had hoped to educate people about the incinerator so that we could influence decisions. However, I've come to realise that the judicial review isn't about whether or not the incinerator is a good idea. It's instead about legal technicalities. Chase will be alleging that the board acted unlawfully in the way that it dealt with the planning application and in how it arrived at its decision. And so public opinion will most probably have no impact on the outcome. And I say most probably because as a decision maker in that court, you're going to be influenced by the media in some way or another. But this has gone so far into the legal system that no one will be questioning if an incinerator is the right solution for the future of waste in Ireland. Next time on Don't Waste Our Future, I'll be speaking with someone who works very close to the site where the incinerator is proposed to be built to get his take on the issue. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have any suggestions for speakers or ideas of topics to discuss, I'd love to hear them at info at See you next time.